Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Fergus Kell, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast by the Chatham House Africa Programme. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we will be discussing the upcoming Kenyan general election due to take place just days from now. And on this episode, I'm very lucky to be joined by a co-host who will be conducting one of our three interviews, my colleague Fergus Gell. Hi, Fergus. Thanks for having me on. Now let's begin with the question that I'm sure all of our listeners would love an answer to. Why are these elections so important? Well, these elections on the 9th of August, uh, it's a general election. So Kenyans are voting at all levels of government, at the county level and at the national level. But in terms of the executive, this will mark a presidential transition after two terms of Uhuru Kenyatta's presidency. Kenyan elections are always high stakes affairs, not just domestically, but also regionally as a major economic hub and an anchor for regional stability uh, in what can be quite a turbulent region. Thank you for that answer, Fergus. Now, this podcast, of course, isn't our only piece of work around the election. Fergus, are you able to enlighten our listeners on what else we've done? So this podcast is part of a series of events and outputs around the looking at the Kenyan elections and the Kenyan political system. Uh, back in March, we hosted the two presidential frontrunners, William Bruto and Raila Dinga, about a week apart from each other uh, to give addresses at Chatham House in London. We've also hosted a roundtable discussion in Nairobi with civil society, looking at concerns and, and prospects around the preparations for the elections and the, the status of the IEBC, that's the Electoral Commission. And to end our introduction, Fergus, what do you think the three interviews we are about to hear tell us about the forthcoming vote? I think we've got three fascinating interviews here. And the first one with Wahiga Mwara provides us with a really interesting overview of the key issues that Kenyans will confront on voting day. And one of the key topics that's discussed there is about the clash between issues and personalities, regions and alliances in Kenyan politics. The second interview with Sylvia tells us that elections are a process beyond polling day itself that process of ensuring inclusivity in Kenyan elections is a long-term process and includes issues around campaign financing and the status of young women's participation uh, and participation of people with disabilities. Then the final interview with Mule Masao of the Elections Observation Group tells us that there are still major questions around the preparations for the for the polling day in Kenya, including around technology and the readiness of the IEBC. Thank you so much, Fergus. And I'm sure all of our listeners look forward to seeing all of those points you just said answered by our incredible guests. Wahiga Amwara is an award-winning journalist and special projects editor at Citizen TV in Nairobi, Kenya, where he also hosts Newsnight, a leading political talk show. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Wahiga. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a, a slightly warmer day in, in Nairobi, in a very cold season, but uh, hopefully this chat will warm us up. Most definitely. Okay, great. Someone so well-placed, my questions, I hope, will provide you with the opportunity to really inform our listeners of what the current context is and actually give them an understanding of where things are and where they could go. To begin, Kenyan elections have been labelled as often being more about alliances and personalities than policy issues. 
Do you believe that is the case in this election? I think this election is a very interesting one because in many ways it's, it's a transition, not just of leadership, with President Uhuru Kenyatta retiring after his second term, but also a transition of ideologies between that which you've spoken of, personalities, alliances, tribes, and so forth, but also a very new philosophy of issues. Not new in the sense that it hasn't been there before. In 2002, when uh, the late President Daniel Arab Moy was retiring, the economy was a big concern then, and the IMF was, was, was heavy on Kenya with all the requirements that were needed to support Kenya move forward. And so when Moi Kibaki and the alliance then took over, their rallying call was, we're here to fix the economy. So it, it's not that issues like the economy haven't been discussed in previous elections. In 2013, the Jubilee Alliance then came with a promise of fixing the economy. In 2017, they came in as a party with a promise of taking the economy to the next level. But this year, in this particular season, as much as personalities, alliances, and tribes still play a key factor in our political setup, and in who will be the next occupant of State House, one cannot run away from the fact that global challenges and local challenges have put Kenyans in a very tight spot. And right now, a majority of Kenyan voters are very keen to hear from their leaders on what they'll do about the cost of living, unemployment, and corruption. And it's, those aren't just issues I've gotten off the top of my head. Those are issues that have been cited very well in opinion polls that have been conducted almost every month this year. So personalities still count, and you'll see that in our presidential debates. People still want to see certain people debating because they've watched them and they trust them. Tribal arithmetic still matters, and you will realize this when you see how certain presidential candidates have visited certain regions numerous times and only gone to other regions once in a while. For example, that the Mount Kenya region has been visited so many times that it's become almost ridiculous to a casual observer how many times both leading political formations can have rallies in the same region. And the issue of alliances is never too far from our politics, especially last year, there was a great attempt to get the right people on your side by both leading political formations. So I'm not saying that that's not important. Trust me, it is. But at the moment, and especially with two weeks to the polls and in the season of presidential debates, issues of the economy, cost of living, unemployment and the war on corruption are issues that anyone who wants to be the next president of Kenya must be well-versed with and must be keen to provide solutions that are realistic, that are measurable at a time like this. So, so we are in this sort of twilight zone between one generation of the way in which politics was done and hopefully what will be a, a better future that's more issue-driven and, and issue-based. On the topic of issue-driven there, because I think your answer was fantastic, being able to really provide an insight on where different opinions may vary, especially around the specific alliances and the personalities of the front-running candidates. You know, what are those issues that separate the main candidates and their manifestos? Very interesting. Fundamentally, every candidate is promising Kenyans a better future, okay? On the back of a pandemic, on the back of a contracting global economy, and on the back of a local economy that has gone through very turbulent times as well, sort of local inefficiencies, our debt repayments are at an astronomical level, our production has gone down, our exports uh, have gone down, so we're importing a lot of what we consume in this country, and that's what affected by the global market. So we are in the perfect storm, as one party put it in their manifesto. That 
no one can deny. What separates the manifestos, I would say, is the emphasis. So, for example, the manifesto provided by the Azimio coalition, first of all, Azimio has sort of sold itself as this unifying coalition, a coalition that is for all Kenyans, that brings Kenyans together with the hope that together we can go further. But within that manifesto, they've, of course, given their their thoughts on what they will do for the economy with a strong rallying point to fighting corruption. So the candidate, the Honorable Raila Odinga, the presidential candidate and his deputy, Martha Karua, have sold themselves as the unifying team, the anti-corruption team, and the second liberation team that have now come to liberate Kenya once again economically and from the clutches of corruption. They are facing off against another very interesting team on the other end, the Kenya Kwanzaa Group, led by our current Deputy President William Ruto and his running mate Rigadi Gashagwa, his Deputy President candidate. Now, as for their side, Kenya Kwanzaa, it's all about the economy from the very beginning. In fact, when they asked about the war on corruption, they cite state capture as the key issue that needs to be handled. But for them, they say our most immediate priority should we get into power after August 9th, is to quickly revive the economy. They have tapped the likes of leading economist David Lee, and I think an economic think tank of about 200 people or so, at least you know that's what they've told us, who came up with this manifesto that they say is a um, sort of like, is it a Marshall plan or a recession manifesto, one that looks at an economy that's in a recession to spur it forward and get it out of that, create as many jobs as quickly as possible get money from central government into people's pockets, farmers, juakali artisans or manual labor artisans, and so forth. So in a sense, they are all selling a better dream for Kenya with Azimio looking at it as the better life for Kenyans is through Route A, while Kenya Kwanzaa are saying, no, no, we also want to get Kenyans to a better place, but through Route B. Not forgetting, of course, Professor George Wajakoya, who believes thinking out of the box is what will save Kenyans. And he's proposed radical solutions such as large-scale farming of marijuana, industrial hemp, rescheduling some of our loan obligations with our international partners immediately as soon as he comes into office, a very dramatic war on corruption by hanging the corrupt, and even the possibility of exporting the, the testicles of hyenas as a, a possible income earner for Kenyans. <laughs> are some of his ideas. And, and not forgetting the fourth presidential candidate, David Mohore Wahiga, who together with his running mate have based their manifesto on fight corruption, bring back money that's been siphoned out by previous governments into the country to revive the economy. So in a nutshell, that's what they're all promising. Everybody stating that they will create a better life for Kenyans, but through different routes and, and I hope I've, I've made that clear for our listeners. There was definitely uh, some dramatic proposals there. And actually, another element to every election, not just the Kenyan elections, but globally, has always been around money and campaign financing. How significant do you believe money is and financial backing in determining the results in this current election cycle? Front-running candidates have considerable backing from wealthy donors. And what is the transparency on this topic, especially in the context of legislation to regulate campaign financing not passing this year? That's the million-dollar question, if I can put it that way. Because late last year, our lawmakers actually threw out a campaign financing law that would have compelled them to disclose the amount and source of contributions received for campaigns. 
So that tells you something. They don't want to be forced to tell Kenyans where they're getting their money from and how much money they are receiving to run their campaigns. And it gives you a sense of the psyche in our country that the issue of money is one that is never spoken of publicly. You, you never declare your source of wealth. And whereas our lawmakers and public servants must declare their wealth every year, that declaration is sealed in an envelope and is kept somewhere. And for you to get access to it as a journalist or civil society, you need to write to the relevant authorities and pray and hope that that information will be availed to you. So that gives you a sense that as a society, it appears at the moment that our leaders are not ready to have that very important discussion around how leaders get money for their campaigns and, and how much of it they receive as well. And it has affected us dramatically. And I'll tell you this, I recently had the opportunity to host a panel at one of the presidential debates. And one of my panelists was a gubernatorial candidate for the Nairobi seat, but dropped out along the way. And the other panelists began a discussion around how Kenyan politics has changed and how we are now issue-based. You have Wajakoya telling Kenyans, if we farm marijuana, we can make a difference. You have David Mwaure telling Kenyans, let's fight corruption, let's do this. And all these other candidates making all these pledges and promises, which hopefully tells us that we are now more issue-focused. But this particular politician who was a panelist at the presidential debate interrupts everyone and tells me this, listen, Wahiga, you can listen to all these other experts who've never really run a political campaign, but I have run a political campaign. And in Kenya, political campaigns depend on three things. Number one is your tribe. And he said in Nairobi, he believes and he claims that he was edged out because he was not from the right tribe or there were too many people from his tribe going for that seat and they all had to kind of give it up for one. The second thing he said was your political party. There are certain strongholds. Doesn't matter whether you fell from heaven like an angel. If you are not from the right political party, you are dead on arrival. And the third thing he said was the question of money. When you go out to meet the people, after you have sold your beautiful manifestos and everything else, there's a, an expression they use in Swahili, mweshimiwa, unasema vipi, which roughly translated would say member of parliament or, or leader or politician. What are you really saying is the direct translation. But indirectly, what they're asking you is, what are you leaving us with? And he even told us that sometimes his campaign team would tell him, there's a particular region within the constituency that you're vying for a county that say they're not really feeling you on the ground. You haven't visited them yet. He then went on to say, it's not that I haven't been visiting them. It's just that I haven't left them with any money when I go there. And so close to 60 years after independence and with a very vibrant democracy, when you compare with many other African, Asian, and even some Western countries as well, as much as our country has made gains in the search for true leadership through the right systems and procedures, the issues of the economy and poverty has meant that a culture has been built up, supported by leaders, but also welcomed by the people who are suffering. And it, it's only natural that you do that, where if you don't put money on the table when you go for a campaign, then you will not be taken seriously. And so we have had all sorts of stories where on one end, you have members of the political class who will go and take loans, take mortgages, sell off prime assets, do whatever it takes to get some money for their campaigns, knowing that they cannot visit their constituency 
to campaign unless they have hard cash. We've also heard of ridiculous stories of sitting members of parliament who will only visit their constituencies at the end of the month because they know they have some money, but they will not go mid-month because they know they don't have money and anything could happen to them. And, and what I mean by this is sometimes as a member of parliament or as a leader or even as an aspiring politician, you might be invited to attend a fundraiser, a wedding, a funeral, you name it. You attend and maybe you've carried 20,000 Kenya shillings, well, that's what, 100 to 150 pounds, I guess. And you'd give your donation. And as you're leaving, a group of young men block your vehicle and tell you, hey, leader, you can't just leave until you give us something. And I've hosted several politicians who've told me that they were told that we are literally going to hold you hostage here until you give us some money. And the Nairobi woman representative, Esther Pasaris, at one point even tweeted, police, come and help me. The, I'm being held almost hostage. Of course, they're not being violent to you, but they just won't allow your motorcade to move out of there until you give them some money. I know I've said many things, but uh, the truth of the matter is money is still a very, very important factor in, in Kenya. And the last thing that I would say is this, whereas in other democracies, you hear of politics and campaigns and fundraisers that are driven by the people, where ordinary citizens of that country send their resources to a particular political camp or a particular political individual and, and say, you go and campaign with our money. In Kenya, I've spoken to several aspiring politicians who have come from the business world and from other sectors on how they tried to fundraise and were not successful. They raised very little money. And a lot of times people tell them, in Kenya, when you want to become a politician, you are the one to give out the money. You are buying votes. Whereas in other countries, people actually support the campaigns of you know, former President Barack Obama and others, and you have large donations, small donations, and it's all a very transparent process. Here, unfortunately, it isn't, and our leaders aren't ready to make it transparent, and that's clear when they even turned down that campaign financing law late last year in Parliament. Some fascinating insights here, Wahiga, and I, I completely agree with regards to vibrant democracies fundamentally should and must be about issues. They must be about policy. They must be about change and not necessarily just, you know, the, the individuals with the deepest pockets having the opportunity to, to gain political power, which unfortunately often is used once again to ensure that those pockets aren't necessarily emptied by the politics they'd engaged in before. But often we see when these types of narratives around not being able to engage in the political process as a result of a lack of finances, often leads to disillusionment. And one group that is currently disillusioned, at least from what the current data shows, is young people. And we've seen a decline in young people engage in the political process and even registered to vote in the upcoming elections. What do you believe the reasons are behind this alongside much of what you've just said? I, I heard someone say on social media that did we overestimate the power of the user vote? Around the world, the narrative has been that young people are hungry, restless, angry, unemployed, and ready to take over the leadership of their countries. And they are doing so, some through peaceful means, others through violent means, unfortunately. And the World Bank has really helped crunch up the numbers of the populations of young people in various countries, with Kenya's, I think, latest World Bank standing at 70% of the population. And so I think that may have built a narrative that the 2022 election will be the election for young people, okay? And where 
the voice of the youth will be more important than the voice of any other significant group in our country. But the voter registration process told a completely different story with disappointing numbers of young people actually showing up to register to be voters. And this could be for a number of reasons. One obviously is a sense in which many young people are disillusioned by our current economic setup, the lack of jobs, and the very difficult climate to conduct business. And, and that is the reality. And a lot of people then, and I've heard young people say out there, not scientifically, this is more of anecdotal, that it doesn't make a difference whether I vote or not either way. Uh, it will not change anything. The leaders are the same. They come in, they make promises, they don't deliver. Another lot comes in, makes promises, and they don't deliver as well. I think we also have a, a generation of young people that are very, maybe I would say individualistic. The time that I would take to go and register to vote, I can use that time looking for an extra shilling. I can use that time to do something else that actually counts for me. Does it make a difference? And there's also a, you know, a large group of young people who aren't following politics, don't really care what's going on, and are more engaged with personal lives, entertainment, etching out a living, and that sort of thing. There's also another concern, however, that a reason that many young people do not show up to register to vote is that there are many that may not have ID cards. And so we've even had political formations going out on the campaign trail telling young people, get your ID cards. You must get them. You know, you've just turned 18. Maybe you don't see what need you'll have for that identification card. But it's a very important prerequisite to be given the right to vote by the IBC as well. So on one hand, you may have a group of disillusioned young people who just don't want to participate in the democratic process by which we select our next leaders. But on the other hand, you also have another group of young people who just have not been given IDs, maybe went to apply and never got them. And there were even concerns that there are some political camps that would prefer that the voter, I mean, this is all conspiracy theory, that the voter register stays as it is. You know, young people are unpredictable. They could do anything. And so some wondered, is that why, for example, we did not see the IBC conduct a very aggressive youth mobilization campaign? That wasn't seen this time around. And so there's a conspiracy theory. Are there those who would prefer that not many young people are involved in this process as voters? But again, it's a conspiracy theory that, that you'd find hard to prove. But for a number of reasons, the youth contribution to this election has been disappointing. Beyond the fact, however, that young people have been a majority of those who show up at these mega rallies. And so in terms of optics, there are a lot of young people at the different rallies contributing, you know, making noise, cheering, jeering, and so forth. There's a lot of young people on social media talking about what they'd like to see, what they hate, ETC, and advocating for this and that. But it, it isn't resonating with the IBC's numbers on how many actually showed up. And it's a, it's a sad place to be. I hope that in the run-up to the 2027 election, that the IBC will have, maybe it's the budget, to carry out, together with other partners, to carry out a very a long-term drive to encourage young people to register to vote and even go to where they are. Because for a lot of young people, it could be that the nearest location to register to vote is five kilometers from me. I don't have the money to get there. I'm not going to walk there and that sort of thing as well. So I, I feel as, like as a country, we missed the opportunity. And whereas we have 22.1 million registered voters, could it be that our, our true potential 
would be anywhere between 26 million to nearly 30 million of young people out there who, for one reason or the other, we missed out in this current uh, voter registration uh, drive. It's, it's food for thought, and hopefully those involved in the process in 2027 will, will factor in some of those issues that I've raised. Thank you so much for ending on such a positive note. I completely agree with you there that, that yeah, young people at the end of the day are disillusioned as a result of numerous factors, not necessarily just you know the candidates or their policy, but also the limitations placed on them logistically. And yeah, we're hoping to see a useful turnout this election and hopefully the next as well as you've outlined. Thank you so much for your contribution. It has been fantastic to speak to you once again. And the elections in Kenya, of course, merely days away. We are very, very thankful to you for taking your time to support us with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, and I appreciate and looking forward to having other conversations like this in the future. Sylvia Katua is an advocate of the High Court and currently runs programs on youth and women inclusion in political processes at Mazalendo Trust. Mazalendo is a Kenyan non-partisan parliamentary monitoring organization whose mission is to promote the realization of open, inclusive and accountable parliaments across Kenya and Africa. Welcome to Africa West, Sylvia. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you for having me here. I'm also excited. Fantastic. And to jump straight into the questions themselves, ensuring diverse participation in the democratic process is a challenge for all major democracies. The question is, how is Kenya faring in this election in terms of the inclusion of marginalized groups, such as people living with disabilities? Okay, that's an interesting question, considering the kind of work we do at Mzalendo Trust. So at Mzalendo Trust, uh, which is a parliamentary monitoring organization, we focus on three key areas. That's openness, inclusion, and accountability of parliament. So inclusion is something that's very close to us, and we've done a lot of work around that. And so when we're looking at Kenya's general elections in August 2022, I'd say three key things come up. First, if we look at the campaign financing, legal and regulatory regime. So we have an act, we have the Campaign Financing Act that was enacted in 2013, but till date, it has still not been implemented. And recent regulations brought to IBC, brought by IBC rather to parliament, have been rejected severally twice in fact, both in 2017 and recently in 2022. But there has been a recent court decision affirming IBC's right to gazette regulations without input from parliament. So that's a step forward. So why would I speak about campaign financing uh, regulations? It's because we have an uneven political terrain which favors politicians who have more money, seasoned politicians, um, people who have access to sizable resources as compared to young people, as compared to young women, persons with disabilities, and even women generally. So you find that even before we get to the actual election, there's already an unequal footing for all candidates because some have access to more resources and they do not state where the, the source of these resources have come from or how they're spending it. And so this causes an uneven political terrain, as I mentioned before. And so if we had these regulations in place, then it will be much better for persons with disabilities, for women, young women, and women generally. And you'll notice that I've divided young women from youth and women, and I think we'll speak a little more about that later. Secondly is the issue to do with negotiated democracy. In December 2021 and early this year, Parliament passed the Political Parties Amendment Act 2021, 
which sought to change the structure and definition of political parties by recognizing coalitions as political parties. Now, the effect of this has been that parties consolidated their membership and numbers and creating coalitions. Right now, we have two main ones, and we have a couple of peripheral ones. I think we know the two main coalition parties in Kenya, that's the Azimio coalition and the Kenya Kwanzaa coalition. So you see, within these coalitions, political actors have had to be accommodated within this umbrella. And so in an effort to get the winning formula, if I can call it that, political parties and coalitions actually adopt an elimination and consensus building sort of formula, some through polling processes, others do through opinion polls. And the result of this is that strong candidates emerged as compared to others. And when I say others, I mean especially those who are marginalized. So you find that the biggest casualties of this negotiated democracy type of structure, which is the first to be used in all elections we've had in Kenya, has been the marginalized groups. And so you find perhaps in a particular county, whereas there were a couple of youth candidates vying or persons with disabilities vying for the governor position or for the senatorial position, the coalition sits down and comes and says, okay, we'll only have this particular candidate because we prefer this candidate. And that the, the reasons for getting that candidate might not be very clear. They may be opaque. So they've been the biggest casualties, like I said before. So that's the issue to do with the, the negotiated democracy. On the other hand, in some areas, for example, like Bomet County, there's a young woman who's come forward um, through this same process, you know, and she's actually the woman representative for that particular coalition in that area. So there have been some winners, but for the most part of it, youth, young women, women and persons with disabilities have really been left out during this process. And this was during the party primaries process. However, it's not all doom and gloom, if I can say that. I think one thing we've noticed in this election has been vibrant youth leagues and PWD leagues, persons with disability leagues, especially in the coalitions. We've seen them, there's, there's been strength in numbers. So when many small political parties come together, their relevance and popularity increases. And so does their youth leagues and their persons with disability leagues. And you find that they're very active in the process. And we've seen that some of the commitments that the presidential candidates have made have been to do with inclusion. And uh, we hope to see that this will be actualized the 2022 general elections. Thank you so much for that overview. That was incredibly useful to be able to understand the context the election is taking place in. One thing you mentioned was women. And, you know, with one of the leading deputy presidential candidates being a woman, this has generated a lot of attention, maybe more externally than internally within Kenya. Do you believe that this has impacted on the engagement of women in the electoral process in general? I will say yes. First, I think the starting point of all this would be to look at the appointment of the chief justice. That heralded a new era, if I can say that, because that was the first time we had an arm of government having female leadership. And this revived the push for inclusion and meaningful participation of women in political and governance processes in the country. And so that's where I think once the Chief Justice Martha Comer came into power, came into office rather, um, we saw was that push for more women leadership. And so um, we've, we've seen before that uh, women have previously vied for the presidency, but now it's it's looking a bit more attainable in the sense that I think while women have previously vied for the presidency before, it's only now looking attainable owing to the popularity of the candidate. And I think here we're talking about Martha Karua, who is the deputy presidential candidate. But we've also seen even the other two presidential candidates have had women um, deputy presidents select in that aspect. And so it's sparking conversations 
and hope among women that this ceiling can be broken for them. And I think it would be very interesting to see how women will come out to vote based on this. No, that makes complete sense. And actually to, to really bring up something you mentioned in your initial answer around young women. So, you know, how does this or this feeling that you've mentioned where women are more engaged in the political process as a result of being, of course, appointed as chief justice and now, of course, running as a deputy president, that attainability you're referring to, how does this intersect with the youth vote? Do young women in particular face a challenge in being involved in politics? Yes, it does. So before we've seen a lot of voter apathy among youth, we've seen earlier this year there was an enhanced voter registration drive. IBC had been targeting, I think, about 6 million voters in the first phase and about 4 million voters in the second phase, but they only managed to get about 2.5 million voters. And that's just the youth, many of them being the youth, because they were targeting many young people to come out and register. Also in 2013, we've seen 46% of the registered voters were youth. And then in 2017, that proportion increased by about 5%. And this shows there's not much participation from the youth. Uh, if you compare to the kind of the number of youth we have in the country, if you look at the demographics we have. And so I think this time, despite the low numbers in terms of voter registration, more still needs to be done, perhaps moving forward, considering we're only uh, youth consist almost about 80% of the population. And so that the vote that the biggest block that political parties should be looking at to get the vote. And I think they're trying to do that in the form of youth leagues. So I think the apathy needs to, uh, to be addressed moving forward, especially in terms of civic education and trying to engage them through interesting means, not just uh, what we always do, you know, the same old, same old. But I think also when we think about young women, they are facing unique challenges that are not similar to what youth face, to what women face, to what men face. And so there needs to be interventions addressed for this. And Mzalendo has actually done some work around this. We've undertaken research on this. And we term the youth, the young women demographic as the invisible minority. So in 2019, we released two reports on the inclusion and participation of youth and women MPs in Kenya's 11th and 12th parliament. And once these reports came out, we realized, you know, as we continued interacting with the respondents and even during the launches of these reports, we learned that there were some unique challenges that women seeking to join elective politics were facing. This is because young women are at the intersection of both youth and women. And while each individual group, this is youth and women, have constitutional and statutory provisions that protect and promote their rights to political participation, the same is not accorded to young women. Let me give you an example. If you go to a political party youth league right now as a young woman and I say, I want to join the youth league, the youth league will tell me, okay, that's fine, but um, we won't really give you priority because you, you're in the women league. When I go to the women league, the seasoned older women politicians will tell me, you're still young, go back to the youth league. And so you find that they're in the middle, they're in this predicament where they're facing marginalization on two fronts. And so consequently, they're not adequately represented or do not participate effectively either as youth and women. And we realize that challenges can be divided into two. First, on personal level barriers. And secondly, on structural barriers. When we talk about structural personal level barriers, we're talking about barriers that influence young women's decision-making capacity in terms of whether to seek for the political office or not. 
So should I, should I not? And when we talk about structural barriers, we talk about those that threaten the participation of young women once they've gained access to the political terrain. So some of the personal level barriers include limited information, that's lack of awareness, limited training, limited mentorship. There's also the traditional view of women in society. And then there are, there are higher requirements of standards of achievement for women, younger women as compared to men. Do you have a master's? Are you married? And for structural barriers, we think about things of, uh, like the role of political parties, what are political parties doing to strengthen the participation of young women, the limited financial resources. And we spoke a little bit about that when I highlighted on the campaign financing regulations and how difficult it is for young people to access the sort of resources and networks that their older counterparts have. Also issues to do with limited influence and networks and political violence. You'll find that young women face a lot of political violence, and this is not only limited to physical, but it's also online, digital violence. A lot of campaigns are now happening online. And so not only through disinformation and misinformation, issues to do with online bullying, harassment, doxing have come up. And so they face more challenges than the rest. Once again, thank you so much for that really, really insightful answer. Now, moving on to another area, devolution, a fun one for all of us international affairs enthusiasts. As we know, Kenya introduced a new constitution in 2010 that established devolved governments in 47 counties and broadened the democratic structure. This election is not just about the national presidential contest. Kenyans are also voting for leaders at a county level. How do you think the devolution process has impacted wider engagement with the political system? So I'd say first, 12 years after we have our Constitution of Kenya 2010, um, which provides for clear separation of power between arms of government and even between the national government and the county governments, I think a large part of the electorate is yet to shift from the national system. You know, the, the president is supreme system. And so there's little discourse on the lower seats. And when I talk about the lower seats, I mean the seats at the county level. So the gubernatorial seat, the um, member of county assembly seat. And so I think the main thing that comes into play here is the issue to do with awareness. There's little to no awareness on the mandates and expectation of each seat. And uh, you'd even find even currently on the campaign trail, some of the Aspirants will give you tales of how they go campaign. And when people ask them, okay, what will you do for us? We don't really understand what we would want um, a particular politician to do for us. The role of a member of a national assembly is different from that of a senator or is different from that of a governor. But I think for us, it's still vague. Uh, we still don't understand these distinct and clear roles. And this is something that, again, we've done research, we've undertaken research on, and we launched a report in 2019 just trying to highlight the lack of civic awareness and what needs to be done so that people can be able to understand the roles of each seat, if I can call it that. Then secondly, if we also think about uh, how the devolution process has, has impacted the wider engagement with the political system is issues to do with the cost of politics. Again, the cost of politics has increased with devolution and with the cascading of power down to the grassroots. So you'll find that issues to do with what the voter handouts that voters seek for. So this has an impact on aspirants and especially marginalized groups. So this has increased cost of politics. Also issues to do with succession politics at the county level. You'll find that governors are interested. There are some governors who are interested in who next will be coming to take um, after me. 
and just how best you know the affairs of the county will be managed uh, after this particular person leaves. So I think devolution has had both positive and negative impact, but I, I think again this remains to be seen post the elections. Well, that brings us to an end. Silvius, thank you so much for that really, really insightful and informative interview. I'm sure our listeners are deeply thankful to you and the Mazalendo Trust for the work that you do in trying to make politics more accessible to those that are often left behind. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mule Musao is a national coordinator of the Elections Observation Group, ELOG, a leading domestic elections observation and monitoring platform in Kenya, which was established in 2010 and is made up of civil society and faith-based organisations. Welcome to Africa Wayamule and thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here to chat a bit about the preparations for Election Day itself. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So... We've seen that leading political candidates have been critical of the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission's preparations over issues such as the transfer of polling station voters and the presence of a manual voters register. How would you assess public confidence in the IEBC in the run-up to polling day? I think in my assessment, Kenyans have always been very skeptical about how elections are run and managed. It doesn't really matter by who. I think it's been a long-running question in this country how elections are run and there's always a lot of um, trust issues and we have not seen anything which is very different from uh, the current election i think uh, ibc is working has been working from a point where there's a lack of public trust since the 2017 elections and they've been encouraged by very many actors to try to address some of these things by especially reaching out and uh, involving as many people as possible so I think we are still at around um, 50, around 50%. It's basically halfway there. A few weeks ago, for instance, if you were to ask me, I think they were gradually gaining some confidence uh, when we were, we were seeing them um, meeting uh, different actors. They met the Editors Guild, uh, they met the political parties, the leadership, they met civil society organizations, they met the private sector, and they were also very open about some of the processes which are going on. So I think we had some level of confidence, which was a momentum which was being built. But now with the last issues, I mean, the last three days we've been discussing the issue about um, the materials which were found at the airport, uh, that does not help uh, boost the confidence. So I would put it at still 50, around 50%. But one, one of the things that um, uh, Kenyans have and where we are right now is that we know that they're going to, to manage that elections and we'll have to make do. Uh, with the commission as is, even with the problems that may be having right now. Thank you so much. Uh, And you mentioned the 2017 presidential election there. As our listeners will know, that election, the presidential election, was annulled by the Supreme Court of Kenya in a landmark ruling which found multiple issues with the electoral process. And maybe the most important of those uh, was a failure of the electronic voter transmission service. What will be the role of technology in these elections? And have those concerns from the 2017 ruling been fully addressed? The major problems that we had with the technology in 2017, like you rightly put it, was on the transmission process. And the transmission process had a number of hitches. One, it was not clear whether the figures which were being processed at the polling stations were the accurate figures, uh, which came through to the National Tallying Center. One of the other problems was that 
we had um, some of the areas where we did not have network coverage, so it was impossible to be able to transmit uh, from those stations. And the third big problem was um, uh, the, the allegations around hacking or interference uh, with the servers um, or the, the technology process of uh, storage of data. So those are the major concerns. Uh, the Supreme Court was uh, spoke about those things in their ruling. Have they been addressed? Uh, IBC to address the question of um, uh, transmission of uh, figures. IBC has come up with a framework where they'll be able to only send images of the resource form. Uh, that is the assurance that nothing then changes in terms of uh, the results which come from the polling stations. In respect to um, the question of network coverage, uh, the Communications Authority of Kenya has indicated that only 1,111 polling stations uh, do not have network at the moment. And IBC has procured uh, satellite modem modems for purposes of transmitting from those areas. So that's, again, is an area, an issue which has been addressed. Uh, the question about servers, uh, well, IBC has said that they are, they are going to procure uh, safe uh, servers uh, that they're going to have resident servers uh, in the country, even as maybe they will do some uh, remote, um, have remote servers somewhere, but they have said that the servers will be accessible. They, were, they are willing to give observers, uh, party agents, and other actors back-end uh, permissions to be able to access the logs, just to confirm uh, what is uh, being processed through the servers or what information is in the server. So, in that respect, yes, then it's been uh, it's all been attended to. What I think the concern which remains is whether everything will work out as, as expected. First, in terms of the transmission of the images, we think that will take a longer process. Uh, we also think that may hamper tabulation. It will take a longer time to be able to tabulate the results, so, which means we may take more time before we get the provisional results from that transmission process. The, the issue about the simulation uh, that was done about a few days ago to confirm whether the transmission process is going to be efficient indicated that we still are going to have a problem. So they are still slow. Uh, again, that may uh, take a longer time, uh, even uh, from the stations which are network coverage. And lastly, so long as they can be able to give us uh, backend permissions to be able to see what is going on in the server, then I would think that problem will then be addressed. And you mentioned the, the question in terms of backend access. Uh, I know that that was an issue back in 2017 as well in terms of access to a, a public portal um, to see the transmission of, of results. Can you give us a little bit more information around the status of that portal this time around and, and access for observer groups such as yourself and also for the media and, and the wider public? Well, what we have so far is a promise that uh, we'll be able to get access to the portal, access to the server operations that allows us to be able to observe what is going on. So far in the two simulations uh, that uh, IBC has conducted, one which was done on the 9th of June and the other one which was done just last week, uh, we were not given that those permissions. So that remains work in progress. So it's a concern that that has not happened so far. What has happened, however, is that they have already signed a memorandum of understanding with the Kenya Editors Guild, uh, which will allow them to access information on the results. 
Uh, to what extent that access will be allowed, uh, apart from the promise, like uh, which you said, they can be able to be, they'll be given back and um, permissions. The reality of it is what we are yet to see. So that has been promised uh, to the Editors Guild through the uh, Memorandum of Understanding that they have signed. It has also been promised to us. ELOG has a Memorandum of Understanding also with the, with the IBC, directly in terms of access to data and access to information. So we hope that it will be implemented and it will be actualized uh, once the election day comes. So that's what we can be able to say for now. But the, but the promise is there. Uh, there are agreement documents which we have. Uh, and uh, if they were to actualize them and implement the agreements, then, uh, then we'll be able to get information that allows us to interpret the data and analyze it further. One final question. Back in 2017, again, we saw that several international election observation missions endorsed the initial process and the presidential result before the ruling came around. How can election observer missions be more effective this time around? Well, we have argued that um, when international observer missions come to the country, I think they need to make a pit stop um, at ELOG and other local actors so that they just First, they can be able to share, get briefs on what has been happening, some of the issues of concern. We have had quite a number of pre-election assessment missions conducted by most of the international observation missions in the last two, three months. And yes, we have been meeting with them. So that is part of the solution to the issue that um, you can be able to get engaged with the local actors, where, for instance, ELOG has um, long-term observers who can be accessed uh, by anybody who goes out in the field. We have provided contacts and we think this is a good practice so that we can keep sharing notes what they're able to see on the ground. For those like the EU who already have uh, and NDI, which already have uh, uh, long-term observers, then they're able to corroborate and triangulate the information uh, that they're getting in the different parts of the country. So that would be very useful. Uh, it's also useful to be able to uh, work with the agencies like uh, the commission, the police and others uh, just to find out uh, their level of preparedness in before the election. After the election, I, I think one of the issues that we were discussing was um, to be much more careful and cautious in how the statements are going to be addressed, where the missions were, be, cannot be able to be account, can be able to account for a particular process, then they don't need to mention it, or they need to be very clear with it. The big omission in 2017 was that nobody talked about the transmission process. So everybody looked at the E-Day processes, which even as ELOG we did, but it was a transmission process that nobody made a comment on, on the process of uh, the tabulation and the declaration of results. So uh, one of the solutions would be to wait just a few days more, uh, rather than um, rushing to the press very quickly to issue statements, it would be useful to take stock of the entire election day process, which includes the transmission and the eventual tabulation of those uh, results at the different tallying centers across the country and at, at the national tallying center. That would be very useful. But even at that point, it would also be very useful to compare notes uh, with the local actors, the local observers, and also with other international observers. Thank you so much, Malay. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for your insights today and for joining us. Thank you so much, Fagas. Also, always, uh, you're always welcome. And that brings us to an end of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. 
please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening on and do leave a review as it will allow others to find this podcast easier. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.